0: This is Fortune's Wheel, a podcast history of the late Middle Ages. I'm your host, Jonathan, and this is episode 28 in which Harold flees. up to an old friend of the show, someone who's made a passing presence already. He's been leading an extraordinary life, an exceedingly extraordinary life, while Canute was creating an empire, while the Tosneys and Hautevilles spread the greatness of Norman ambition, while George Maniakis rose and then fell, and then rose and fell again, and while William went from illegitimate to bastard to duke. Well, this guy, well, he had his hands in just about everything during the mid-11th century. His feet would stand on Sicilian shores, his hands would hold sands near Baghdad, his blonde hair whipped in the frigid, dorthered winds of Norway, his ears would hear the Christian, Jewish, and Muslim hymns and prayers being sung in Jerusalem. His eyes would gaze upon the Hagia Sophia, and his knees would fall upon the banks of the River Derwent in Yorkshire. He would follow legends into battle and he would lead warriors into history. This short miniseries will focus on the life of a lowly nobleman from Norway who would fight for the title of the last great Viking. This is the life and times of Harold Sigurdsson, better known to history as the incomparable Harold Hardrada. I hope you enjoy the show. As the Cordoba Caliphate was in full collapse in Iberia and the Drangos were hired by Lombards in Apulia, Harold III was born in Rigorik, Norway. The year was either 1015 or 1016, no one's quite sure, but we know he was born in the fertile agricultural lands north of Oslo, called the Uplands. He was born into a lesser noble family. His father, however, was a respected and peaceful nobleman named Sigurd seer whose great-grandfather was thought to be the legendary Norse Viking, Harald Fairhair. Get ready, because that claim seems to be a pretty common one here. Harald's mother, Asta Gudbrand's daughter, prior to her marriage to Harald's father, was actually married to a petty king named Harald Grinsky, who was said to have descended also from Harald Fairhair. Beyond that... Asta also had a son to Harald Grensky, Harald's half-brother, Olaf II Haraldsson. For the first decade and a half of Harald Sigurdsson's life, Olaf II would have an enormous impact on his little brother. And he, that is, Olaf II, would be the main driver who instigates our protagonist forward, so it makes sense to spend the necessary time in understanding Olaf II's motivations and actions first. Olaf II was already around 20 years old when Harold was born, having been born in 995, the time period if you remember when the likes of Olaf Tryggvason and Swain Forkbeard were ravaging the English coastlines and upending trade networks in the North Sea region to fit their own purposes. Olaf II, as so many young Scandinavian men did then, joined the fracas and began amassing a little wealth of his own and assuming the role of warlord in his own right though he was nowhere near influential enough to garner support away from the others like Canute quite yet. He was, however, a part of the war both for and against King Ethelred in the latter years of the Danish conquest of England. He led warriors against the English between 1009 and 1011. The Heimskringler recounts him fighting alongside Thorkel the Tall in the Siege of Canterbury. But as Vikings were wont to do, he switched allegiances away from the da- Oh, excuse me, away from the Danes in ten thirteen, because King Ethelred was, well, frankly, offering a larger paycheck for his services. There are poems of his daring attack on Danish London and helping Ethelred reclaim the city on the Thames. But after Swain Forkbeard yanked more and more land away from Ethelred, Olaf the Olaf the Second decided to move on, conducting raids and. Iberia, both in the Christian kingdoms in the north and the southern caliphate centered in Cordoba in the south. And he also is known to have visited the courts of France by way of Normandy, you can imagine, uh, Denmark, Finland, and Sweden courts as well. Olaf II had become a Viking warrior to contend with. There's no question there. He decided to make the bold decision to wrest his homeland away from a man named Hakan of Laid in 1015. And by 1016, he had all but conquered Norway as his own, claiming descent from Norway's first great king. here we go again, the legendary Harold Fairhair. Having been born and raised pagan, Olaf II had converted along the way, possibly at any number of courts he visited, Ethelreds or, or Duke Richard II's maybe in Normandy, though many believe it to be in Rouen. As Olaf would bring a Norman archbishop named Grimkel back to Normandy, excuse me, back to Norway with him. And it's said that Olaf only used Norman monks to spread Christianity throughout Norway too. But that only holds tenuous truth in it. And by 1024, Norway was slowly becoming a Christian kingdom. Hence his later can- canonization by the church being posthumously renamed Saint Olaf. But it's not as if Norway was finally at peace under the rule of their future saint. Between 1019 and 1028, Olaf II had to quell minor uprisings around the kingdom, specifically those instigated by Canute and those loyal to him. Canute had overwhelmed the trade routes and claimed them as his own shipping lanes, more or less, which of course created a very hostile commercial environment for Norse traders all over the North Sea. In 1019, when Canute made peace with Sweden and joined with them to protect Norse and Swedish interest from Danish influence. Unfortunately for Olaf II, and subsequently the Swedish too, Canute's influence was just too great at that point, and in 1026, Canute sailed from England, picked up reinforcements in Denmark, and met King Olaf along with his Swedish ally, Anund Jacob off the coast of eastern Sweden in a clash that was largely inconclusive, but it had a lasting impact on Olaf's ability to protect his kingdom. Sweden was cowed for a time after the engagement, while Olaf retreated to lick his wounds. And while he did so, Canute had the resource, resources to not only head south to Rome, but also to financially foment rebellion in the pagan inner Norwegian mountains. It didn't help that Olaf had already spent a considerable amount of time and money during the 1020s converting or trying to convert these same people to Christianity, even though many of them had no desire whatsoever to abandon their Norse pantheon. By 1028, Canute had removed Olaf II from the throne with the help of the agitated petty lords in Norway, promising them far more autonomy than Olaf II ever offered. Olaf II escaped into exile, traveling the nearly 1800, that is, 2,800 kilometers, between Trondheim and the Kievan Rus territory, then led by Yaroslav I, who happened to be part of his own prestigious pedigree, a pedigree that is equally as prestigious as it is controversial. Yaroslav was the son of Vladimir the Great, who was the son of Sviatoslav the Brave, Three generations, represented by nicknames like The Brave and The Great, would only be bolstered by Yaroslav's legacy, earning the nickname The Wise. However, that controversy is really just controversial in our modern perspective of ascension to a head of state role. I mean, sure, nepotism and corruption abound in our own time, but... When it comes to passing a crown from person to person, it rarely today happens by way of very public fratricide and familial infighting, though I'm probably sure you see that at some point, too. Yaroslav and his brothers were certainly guilty of this, as were their fathers, so it's become by the 1020s more of a sacred family tradition, though it would, to Yaroslav's credit, come to an end. Canute in 1028, as a replacement for Olaf II, had set Hakan Eriksson on ruling Norway until he could devote the proper energy and time to it. So while Canute was putting out little fires around his empire, from, from Denmark to England and again to Scotland, a tragedy befell his extensive diplomatic tree. In early 1030, just south of the Orkney Islands, Hakan Eriksson drowned in a shipwreck leaving a power vacuum in Norway. In no time at all, everyone knew it, and as quickly as Knut set about remedying that problem, Olaf II, in far-off Kiev began a trip to take back his crown in Trondheim, with the financial backing of his new bestie, Yaroslav the Wise, who was nothing if not interested in influencing others. Upon hearing word of his half-brother's return, A 15-year-old Harold Sigurdsson of insignificant Ringarik, Norway, began quietly amassing his own retinue of warriors from the uplands, a region that grew to be quite the group of political dissidents in those days. When Olaf II reached Swedish shores, he found his little brother Harold ready and waiting for him to take back the kingdom. He also found a young man, Harold, who separated himself from the quiet leadership of his father. This kid was hardy, And this kid was tough, with an inexplicable ambition in his eyes that drew warriors to his call. At 15, there was no denying that Harald was a warrior, a leader of men. Harald had more than 500 of them who came to his side, all in the name of his brother, the rightful king of Norway, Olaf II. Along the way, they picked up 3,000 Norwegians, mainly from the uplands, a few hundred Varangian mercenaries who came with Olaf, as well as Swedes under the reign of another supposed descendant of Harold Fairhair, this guy, seriously, named Dagger Hringsen, accompanied Harold's 500 men toward the tiny village of Stickelstad, some 60 miles, or 96 kilometers, northeast of Trondheim. Stickelstad, then, as it is today, was a quiet community of farmers and tradesmen who really just minded their own business. They weren't a part of some super loyal or dissident warlord or anything. They were just Stickelstad, you know, just carving out a life just a few miles south of a glacier-carved lake named Lexdalsvatner, if I pronounced that right. Today, there are neighborhoods in the area, but you will still find the area largely agricultural with a tourist site called the Medieval Farm Stickelstad on the site of the battle that took place in August of 1030, almost exactly 1,000 years ago. Interestingly enough, there's a church you can see from the replica Viking house that stood during that battle. Interesting because the Battle of Stiklestad is remembered today as the battle for Christianity in Norwegian history. See, the Christianization of the north was surprisingly quite interesting, in that conversions only happened with kings and the nobility, and rarely trickled down to the common person, though as I've said, merchants were certainly susceptible to the pressures of better relations with the foreign traders they interacted with. The pressures that kings felt to fit in with the other rulers of Europe, such as the Holy Roman Emperor, the, the kings of France, Burgundy, or England, and the bishops of Rome and Constantinople, as well as powerful dukes like those of, of Nor, or excuse me, Normandy. Well, these pressures were also felt by successful businessmen as well. It's an unfortunate fact that Christianity was merely a pawn strategically used to create better relationships. So there, in 1030, Olaf's 4,300 strong force. see, they camped on higher ground outside of the village. They had no intention of engaging any enemies there, but any time higher ground can be managed during an invasion or a war, it's best. Olaf, Dagger, and yes, even Harald, who is said to have impressed his brother, spent the evening surveying the land and planning their move south on Trondheim. Little did they know, two chieftains named Kalfur Arneson, who loyally served Olaf at one time, and Thorir Hund, or Thorir the Hound, Give it up for those Viking names again. We're approaching with a far larger force, outmanning Olaf's by nearly 10,000. Neither side had any formal battle plan. In fact, it kind of, if you stretch it, if you squint just so, it kind of reminds me, for those familiar with the American Civil War of the 1860s, when General Robert E. Lee led his large army of Northern Virginia into the northern state of Pennsylvania, a state who sided with Lincoln's Union. Two of his Confederate soldiers wandered into a nearby town for shoes, so the story goes, as the Confederate army was woefully in need of resources like clothing and footwear and food during the war. These two men confronted two Union soldiers, as in those soldiers who were a part of General George Meade's Army of the Potomac, Everyone, quickly scattered upon seeing the other, told their commanding officers, and within a couple days, these two armies, completely unaware of the other being in the vicinity in the first place, would engage each other on the outskirts of Gettysburg, Pennsylvania, and mark not only a Union victory, repelling the invasion, but also one of the bloodiest days in the history of the United States. See, just on the outskirts of Stickelstad... 820 years earlier than Gettysburg, as Olaf's men camped on a hill, the far larger force of Canute supporters wandered into town on the main trail leading into Stickelstad, which ran along the base of Olaf's hill. Both groups quite surprised by the other. Well, there must have been a moment of sheer panic as they saw each other for the first time. Olaf ordered his men to prepare for battle, it was exact it wasn't exactly a charge downhill though see if you remember vikings were masters of that thing called the shield wall a strategy they employed that employed the front line holding their teardrop shaped shields low to protect their the, from the feet up to the stomach while the second line came up over the top of the first line with their shields to protect where swords and spears were thrust um, between the cracks in the shields, were thrust toward the, the chest area and the head area. The thing was, if Vikings fought other Vikings, and it's also worth mentioning here that Anglo-Saxons also employed this technique, as many by the 11th century were of Scandinavian descent, also led by an Anglophile Dane and Canute. See, it was one shield wall versus another shield wall. And in this situation, it was merely a matter of will. It was a matter of physical power. The two sides met near the base with a ferocity only seen when Vikings were involved in a battle. I can imagine young Harold, as Snorri Sturluson, recorded 200 years after the battle, screaming the battle cry of the rightful king, Fram! Fram! Christman, Crossman, Kongsmen! Translated as forward, forward! men of Christ, men of the cross, men of the king. The battle outside Stickelstad, it is said, went on for hours, neither side giving so much as an inch to the other. But, naturally, casualties did begin to pile up, and only by sheer numbers were Olaf's men beginning to show signs of wear. Snorri Sturluson writes that the sounds of opposition rang out with Fram, Fram, Bonders! Or translated to, forward, forward, farmers! Which is to say, those of honor and duty bound to their lords, push forward. And to me at least, it's, it's just another example of the lower classes being subjected and manipulated to serve the select few at the top. You know, to think that human nature has evolved and civilized over the last thousand years comes with a price tag. You know sure we've we've achieved quite a bit in the way of equality but at its core human nature still has this natural proclivity for a hierarchy it seems and though we claim to be civilized in the 21st century there's there's still this predilection for the lower classes to be manipulated and used by the upper classes in society you know almost like it's allowed We may not be explicitly referred to as bonders, but any nation composed of a single group of people who has a monopoly of power over others, and in the case of conscription, in others' bodies, their actual bodies, you know, most certainly still considers all of us lowly people, they still consider us bonders in nature, as in those bound to their leaders' decisions and even whims, leaders chosen or otherwise. It's worth chewing on, at least. You know, we have listeners of this podcast on, at, at the point of this recording on every inhabited continent. That is, our listenership is currently from 42 different countries around the world, not to mention 41 different states within the U.S. plus Washington, D.C., Take a moment and think about your own power structures, where you fit in, where your grandparents and even your children fit into it. The question of how civilized we actually are and how civilized we think we are, well, it kind of becomes two separate questions, doesn't it? So back to Stickelstad in the year ten thirty. To compare the battle cries is worth a minute of our time as well. Though the likes of Thorir Hund would shout, forward, forward, bonders, Harold and Olaf would shout, forward, forward, men of Christ, men of the cross, men of the king. Taking a deeper look at this and this alone, it doesn't take but a second to realize that one side lifted its men to the heights of virtue, while the other reduced its ranks to mere servants, mere pawns on a chessboard, Now, strategically important, yes, but also completely expendable. One side, it could be said, was fighting for a higher purpose, that of Christianity itself, as well as the man whom they believed to support its rise within Norway. Now, this can be seen as an exaggeration, but I don't think it is, not entirely. Whether these cries were true or not, it's some clever propagandizing happening here. See, Snorri Sturluson, again, was writing this account, uh, named the Heimskringle, about two centuries later. And in the intervening years, much was made of not only this one single battle, but, uh, but of Olaf II himself, but more on that in, you know, shortly. Regardless why the peasantry were there, they were there fighting nevertheless, and what drives a person is the instinct for survival— With the sheer volume of numbers in comparison to their opponent, one side was destined to overcome the other. Finally, well into the battle, exhaustion no doubt crept into both sides. Instead of incessantly pushing against one another, they separated a few feet, changed out a few of the shields, and probably people, and then rammed against each other once again. Spears and swords still looking to find purchase across the inches wide no-man's land. And finally, Olaf's side began to collapse. Olaf himself was wounded three times in the scrum before he allowed himself to fall, mortally wounded. There's no doubt that his young half-brother, Harold was very nearby and saw him. And as Olaf's shield wall began to fall back, one can imagine Harold, again, a mere 15 years old, saw an enemy Norseman, thrust the final spear into Olaf's chest, killing him and ending any such reign in Norway. Harald was also wounded in the battle, though we're not sure when exactly or how or to what extent, but we know that the wound wasn't trivial. Harold, assisted by loyal followers, including his best friend, Rogvalder Brusason, had very little time to act. See, the first and most important task was to get the possible future king away from Stickelstad, away from Trondheim, and away from Knut's faithful vassals. They snuck across the border into Sweden as quickly as they could muster, which must have been an excruciatingly unpleasant journey, as those mountains and fjords are as treacherous as they are aesthetically breathtaking. Just inside Sweden... Harald chose to leave the group because he would have had a target on his back, as you can imagine, being the half-brother of somebody claiming the throne, while the rest had a chance to regain their lives back home in Norway, and while others, well, were Swedish anyway. That left just Harold and his friend, Rogdvalder, who opted to stay with his friend. They were welcomed into Sweden and found refuge in a remote homestead. This respite was only temporary, as everyone present knew from the beginning. Unfortunately for Harold, his healing, it said, wasn't quite finished when word reached him that local Norwegian lords and chieftains were on the move in the borderlands looking for him. Harold and Rogvalder snuck out, no doubt, with festering aches and pains from the battle earlier, and they managed to gain passage on a boat on the northern Swedish coastline. Harold without question knew about his half-brother's recent exile in a faraway land to the southeast, and it was there where he intended to escape in late 1030. The saga, named Garthariki, says Harold and his companions sought refuge far away in Kiev, governed again by a man named Yaroslav I, or Yaroslav the Wise, quote, "...who received them most heartily for the sake of King Olaf the Holy," end quote. And by all accounts the two young exiles were indeed received hospitably. But make no mistake, Grand Prince Yaroslav of the Kievan Rus, he'd put them to work. Immediately. And as, as for Olaf II and his claim to the throne of Norway, a lot was to happen while Harald was in exile. One year after the Battle of Stickelstad, Olaf II was formally recognized within Knut's North Sea Empire, as a champion of Christianity in the north. Indeed, Olaf did convert a, num- a great number of Norwegians. But as we've mentioned, the vast majority of these people were along the coasts, and due to centuries of trade, as we've said, they were already pretty familiar with these mo- with this monotheistic religion. And this is going to be a little bit of review, but I am going to kind of wrap it up to a point here. But not only was it difficult to travel the Norwegian mountain ranges, even in warmer seasons, these folks were firmly pagan and firmly polytheistic. They worshipped Odin, the king of all gods, period. And it was these people that are said to have been gathered by Olaf's opposition at Stickelstad. Which adds to the idea that Olaf and Harald actually did bark at their men to fight. You know, so to speak, fight for the one true god. They appealed to their differences in faith and were able to make a bold stand against paganism, if not a full victory. At least that's what the clever wordsmithing throughout 1031 and well into Snorri Sturluson's time achieved. One year out of Stickelstad, Olaf II, the failed reclaimant to the throne of Norway, the descendant, supposedly, of the revered Harold Fairhair, would be given a feast day. And a shrine at Nidaros would appear soon after. I can't help but wonder if this was pushed by King Canute in a, in a similar way as what he did with his former adversary, Edmund Ironsides. Though Canute never once led a formal battle against Olaf, as he did with Edmund, Canute seemed to be the kind of ruler who didn't feel too threatened by ghosts, even those as respected as Edmund or Olaf II. In fact, Canute, clever as he was, seemed more inclined to allow or even encourage such admiration to flourish in an attempt to quell the conquered and defeated. It is certainly a way to endear one to one's enemies. Adam of Bremen, four decades later, around 1070, wrote about a shrine at Nidaros, which seems to be the only 11th century record of a cult having arisen in Norway centered on Olaf II's Miracle making corpse. And by 1164, Olaf II of Norway was officially canonized as Saint Olaf, patron saint of Norway and the Faroe Islands, as well as woodworkers, and yes, even troubled marriages. Hang on. Troubled marriages? Saint of Norway, I can understand. But as for that last one, I imagine there have been more than a few Norwegian men who have requested the highest saint in the land to help overcome their fiercest adversary at home. But but that's just my own speculation, of course. Or is it? I hope you enjoyed today's episode, not only talking a little bit more about the Kievan Rus and the events that would turn a Norwegian king into a saint, But also reacquainting us to an old friend of the podcast, Harold Sigurdsson. Please keep sharing this podcast with those you know and on your social media accounts. Don't forget to tag us too if you share us on Twitter, at Wheel Podcast, or drop a quick line about the latest episode on Facebook, Fortune's Wheel Podcast. I'd love to hear from you. Also, you can email the show at fortuneswheelpodcast at gmail.com, and please consider supporting the show on Patreon. This new land, Harold's worldview would explode. Everywhere he looked, he would see people who looked very different than what he'd seen up north. People who spoke very different languages, and people who told stories of places even further off Harold's map. No doubt, Harold must have been overwhelmed with it all at one point. On the next episode, we will take a look at Harold's new life, his new world. In addition to that, we will also take a look at one of the Viking Age's greatest rulers, the Grand Prince of the Kievan Rus in the early to mid-1000s, Yaroslav the Wise, as well as see Harold's transformation from mere exile to the very sparks of what would ignite Harold's passions in life: the pull of greater adventure, wealth, and glory that seemed to fuel so many Scandinavians of the age. I can't wait to tell you about it.